This is the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast with Peter Terzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the Arc Energy Ideas Podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Terzakian, and I am super excited today because we have another special guest. We have with us Pat Carlson, successful, actually, I would say Uber entrepreneur in the Canadian oil and gas industry. I don't think I'd be out of line if I said that, Pat, you're probably one of the leading value creators in our industry over the decades that you've been in this business. You founded a number of companies, including Passage Energy, Krang Energy, North American Oil Sands, and most recently, Seven Generations. You've left Seven Generations now, and you're with a new company called Kuitno Resources, and we're looking forward to hearing more about that. But before I turn it over to you, Jackie, I want to just sort of give you a quick anecdote, because I've known Pat since 2002, 17 years ago, and I remember sitting around a boardroom table with Pat and uh, trying to convince the board that the price of oil was going to go to $27. <laughs> the price of oil at the time was 22 and uh, I had a tough time to convince the board to get to 27 and make the investment uh, in his company, but we did it. But anyway, we've got a great agenda. Welcome, Pat Carlson, and over to you, Jackie. Okay, well, today we're going to talk about Pat's past and current company, Western Canadian macro situation, as well as Pat's philosophy on stakeholder engagement, including Indigenous stakeholders and how the industry is adapting to climate change. And we're going to talk Finally, a little bit about the University of Calgary, something dear to my heart because I'm an alumni and so is Pat. So we'll get going. Great. Well, you know, I want to learn more. Actually, I want our audience to learn more about you, Pat, and some of your past entrepreneurial companies, as I mentioned. Companies like Krang, Passage, especially North American Oil Sands and Seven Generations. You often had a foresight to get an early stage to, you know, proverbially see where the puck is going. And now you're in a new venture, Kuitno Resources in the Duvernay. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you think about where the puck is going in this business and, and tell us about your exciting new ventures. Well, we, we've always built companies to address a market need. And increasingly over the last two or three decades, our industry has been transitioning from one of discovery, looking for new resources to recovery, accepting the challenges of getting more oil and gas out of known deposits. And so my companies have all been in the tackling the recovery risk. Um, the last one was uh, in horizontal well multi-stage fracking as that technology emerged. With Kiwitno, we're, we're taking on the challenge of climate change and the need for an energy transition from the heavier oil and coal towards gas. Gas can augment um, wind and solar and enable Alberta to capture the maximum renewals, which wouldn't be capturable because of the intermittency, the intermittent nature without natural gas to back them up. Yeah, you've long been a climate change concerned citizen and long been on board with your companies with the whole idea of the ESG, which we talked about in a previous podcast, you know, you know, talk about that, the E, the climate change, and maybe also, I know you're really big on the S, Indigenous engagement. Kiwitno, that is an Indigenous uh, word. Maybe just talk a little about all that stuff. Sure. Kiwitno is a Cree word for North, and yeah. it was given to me by two friends who were leaders of their respective Indigenous communities that I worked with when I was at Seven Generations, and they've remained friends. And I asked them to name the company, and so they gave me a Kiwitno, which I, I really like. Uh, it's hard to spell, but it always begs the story yeah. that you've just asked. 
I think that we're in a transition in Canada from accepting the government's regulation on projects to being in a situation where individuals want to have their own questions answered. So it's an evolution of democracy towards more empowerment of the people. Interest groups, individuals, local communities all want to have a say in whether a project goes ahead or not. So what we're seeing is these long delays and difficulties getting projects done. But in a broader sense, I think that's the evolution of democracy. And maybe what we're seeing is Canada's really ahead of other democracies because that's got to come. Yeah, I think what you're saying is that the regulator, you know, historically the NEB, now it's going to be the C. CER, Canadian Energy Regulator, regardless whether it's the AER, the Alberta Energy Regulator, what we're actually seeing is more of a fragmentation of the regulatory function into communities. And, and you're sort of ahead of that. You're, you're seeing, again, where that puck is going to that. Right. I think that if you start the dialogue and let people participate in the decision making and uh, then Almost always in my experience, people say, well, what is the best thing to do? Then, And they look to the company for leadership and guidance. And I've never experienced mm -hmm. it otherwise. Mm -hmm. But just going to the community first and going to potential stakeholders, identifying who they might be and talking to them always, in my experience, has, has led to right. a trust relationship being built before an application to a regulator is right. made. I, I want to just comment that uh, these ideas are quite different, I think, than what a lot of people think. And I wanted to uh, point people out to a letter, a stakeholder engagement letter you wrote in 2017 when you were still at Seven Generations, which is also a First Nations meaning, right? The Maybe right. explain that. Yeah, the Iroquois Constitution apparently had a provision that all major decisions ought to be made to benefit the present and six future generations. So they called the concept seven generations. I like it because I equate it to sustainability. Sustainability was defined as meeting the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs by the United Nations in 1988. So what the mm. Iroquois came up with a millennium before, mm -hmm. the United Nations adopted in 1988. So I think it was really advanced thinking, and and I think we need to honor our Indigenous people for the contribution mm -hmm. they make. Well, and, and I want to talk about the stakeholder engagement report, which I'll put a link to, because your letter really resonated with me, and I remember it very clearly. You talked about that societies always change. So you talked about during the Renaissance period, oppressive monarchs eventually had to secede their powers to the people. Slavery fell to fairness. And society is always evolving, and it's evolving again with people wanting more say in the economic activity around them. So, you know, I think sometimes the approach is, oh, well, people shouldn't have all this say, right? There's rights for the company, but actually you're saying that those things change over time, right? The expectations change and companies need to evolve with them. Yeah, and I think when you really think about it, companies ought to have no inherent rights in and of themselves. A company that's owned by a group of people ought to have the same rights as an individual corporation should have, but it isn't the company that should have the rights, people should have the rights. And if you approach things from that point of view, you say in the free market competition for profit, what I have to do is serve my stakeholders better than the other guy. Then that's what you, where you come to is you need to serve all of your stakeholders for your shareholders to triumph. And do you think that the approach we use today, like obviously it's not working that well. We see pipelines like uh, the Northern Gateway be canceled and TMX run into all sorts of opposition. Do you think that that, that could be changed if engagement was done differently? Well, I don't know how those specific situations, how the engagement process went. I, so I don't want anything to sound condemning of their efforts. But I do think that the industry is headed towards more direct dialogue and more upfront dialogue, more upfront input into plans. I can tell you a brief story. I had um, a trip to Fort Nelson one time and I met with a First Nation leader there. It happened to be a, a female chief. And I said, I'm 
who I was and that we had acquired some petroleum rights and that I wanted to talk about our plans to development. And she said, you don't have any plans. And I said, pardon me? She said, you don't have any plans. And I said, well, this, this, I brought these maps and things. And she says, you don't have any plans until we have a plan together. Then you have a plan. And so, mm. so that's just how yeah. how sensitive people are about a company coming into their areas, to their region, to something that they feel pride and ownership in and saying, this is what we're going to do. So I think it you have to include local communities. You have to get, and local communities could be the Canadians who are concerned about climate change. That could be your community, or it could be just the area, the towns closest to where a particular project is. It depends on the situation, but you've got to find out who they are and get them involved. And I also think another thing that's changed is, you know, before companies thought they only had to engage in order to get that approval and then they're done and the project operates for the next 15 years or 20 years in that community. Do you feel like that things are changing, that there's a view that there has to be an ongoing relationship with these communities? I think it's an advantage to have an ongoing relationship. We put our headquarters for operations with seven generations in Grand Prairie so that people would say, the fellow who lives down the streets in charge of environment at seven generations, and I know him, he's a really good guy, so they must be doing things right. We were, we were striving to get that kind of trust that happens between neighbors, and I think it worked really well. And I will verify that because I'm a hometown girl from Grand Prairie and my parents still live there. Every time I go up there, generally, somehow 7Gen comes up and people have such positive things to say about it in the community. That's great. Yeah, that's a great testament to your efforts. I mean, you're really speaking about collaboration, which really isn't a novel concept. It's just working with the people and having a plan together, as you say. Well, the people in a community, investors and others are broadly termed, at least in the business world, as stakeholders. And and so top of mind amongst stakeholders, as described, including investors, is the climate change thing, which I want to come back to because I mentioned it earlier as the E and the ESG. Can you elaborate a little bit more on your views and adaptation of an oil and gas company into a world that has to deal with climate change? Sure. The coal and heavier oils have more carbon to hydrogen than, than methane or natural gas does. And so there's more CO2, carbon dioxide, released into the atmosphere with the burning of coal and, and heavier oils than there is with natural gas. So there is an expectation there will be a transition from the heavier oils towards natural gas. It'll take us a long time to, to not need any heavy oil or any light oil or any natural gas. We're going to be using fossil fuels, I believe, for a very long time. But we can capture the maximum renewables that Alberta has primarily potential in wind and solar. And the wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. So when the wind isn't blowing and the sun isn't shining enough to meet market demand in renewable power generation, we need something to fill in. And quick responding natural gas fired engines driving generators is the way to go, I think. So that's the way that we can help the transition with the local market. With the broader market, we can package up LNG, which is liquefied uh, natural mm -hmm. gas, and put it in tankers, send it to Asia so we can help them make the same transition from coal to natural gas in their power generation and in their petrochemicals. And another really interesting asset that we have in Alberta is our depleted oil and gas reservoirs are places where we can store carbon dioxide so that it doesn't have to be emitted into the atmosphere. And I think that's a potential future demand for that will be very high. When we talked about this new Alberta carbon trunk line, and we're going to be talking about that in the fall. We're going to have them on. Mm -hmm, the CO2 line. Yeah, so there's a new pipeline that will move CO2 from Edmonton to central Alberta. And so that kind of thing is happening. It's not the Jetsons here. 
It's no, happening uh, here in Alberta. No. Yeah, what's the capacity of that line? It would it? move uh, 15 million tons. Now, the current enhanced oil recovery project plan is smaller than that, but that's mm-hmm. the potential if others want to right. take advantage of that pipeline. Well, that's going to be a real demonstration project for the world, really, in terms of being able to sequester high volumes of CO2 from industrial operations. Yeah, and then create uh, a valued product, which is the oil that comes out of it, that absorbs as much CO2 as, as it produces. And there's already one in southern Saskatchewan yep. that takes coal from North Dakota, coal of source CO2 from North Dakota, mm-hmm. and injects it in an oil reservoir in southern Saskatchewan. So Canada is a world leader in carbon sequestration. Mm-hmm. So when you say, you know, you, you see a long future for gas and oil, when you think about technologies like this, how does that make you think in terms of the, the future runway in terms of the world using a lot of oil and gas? I don't think we are in a position to abruptly change much in the world of energy. There's too much capital invested and too much capital required to make big changes, but we can start making changes uh, gradually. One of the things that we're doing at Kiwitno, for example, is we're using byproduct natural gas to position in power generation. We also have an initiative to help promote an LNG project to happen. We're not envisioning having ever the capacity to raise the kinds of billions of dollars that are that are required to build an LNG project, but somebody needs to be there to bring all the parties together. And if there's a role for us to play there, we'd like to do that as well. But looking at power, again, you you uh, can generate a power with natural gas and you can fill in the times when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing enough for Alberta's renewable potential. So we can't get to our maximum renewable potential without something to fill in that gap. And natural gas is the logical choice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Someday we may have storage. Someday we may have a technology where there's economic and practical storage, but we don't today. Mm-hmm. And someday there may be a, a technology that sequesters that CO2 from burning the natural gas and makes it emissions-free as well. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah let's move to the hard-nosed world of dollars and cents and investment. So it's, it's an understatement to say the world is changing on many dimensions and certainly the macroeconomic outlook uh, in the world of oil, gas, energy broadly is changing. We've got lots of deflationary pressure on price of natural gas and the price of oil. Basically, it's harder to make a dollar in today's world of energy, especially in the hydrocarbon world. Talk about Kuitno and you know some of the things that you're doing in terms of generating a return to investors in a you know frankly a pretty tough environment. That's right, Peter. The only products that really make sense to develop in in terms of new supply in Alberta right now would be condensate, which is the liquid associated with deep natural gas, and uh, light oil. And along with light oil and condensate comes natural gas. But in those cases, natural gas is a byproduct that doesn't have much value. Yeah, it's almost free. So it's finding downstream markets for those natural gas. That natural gas has always had uses. So if we can move down the value chain, then we can make natural gas profitable because the plastic in the chair that I'm sitting on probably hasn't changed price, even though the fundamental gas molecule that went into manufacturing it and then bringing it back to Mm -hmm. Alberta has has dropped a lot. So if we just move down the value chain, we should be able to be yeah, so profitable. By, you know, to clarify, moving down the value chain means adding value to a molecule of natural gas by using it to, say, generate power, heat, and other assets. Because if you can convince yourself that over the long term, the price of natural gas as an input is going to remain low, then there's a value proposition of using it here domestically. That's right, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, that's sort of the silver lining to the very low gas prices we mm-hmm. have here in Western Canada, because uh, although gas prices are low, you know, you could turn that into an electron and electron yeah. electron prices are not as depressed. Right. So the historic spread, I'll say, or the historic margin you used to get 
from the rocks, in other words, the gas in the rocks, is now shifted. The value has shifted to what you can do with the molecule from the rocks. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I want to ask you a question about the Duvernay. If I think back to 2010 and 11, there was a time, you know, when the Eagleford was taking off and, and people said, oh, well, the Duvernay is a lot like the Eagleford. It had a lot of the same geological characteristics and there was big expectations for the Duvernay at that time. So the Eagleford is in Texas. That's right. That's Duvernay. a big play in Texas that kind of took off very quickly. And people said that was going to happen with the Duvernay and the Duvernay has not grown at that rate. So just give us some perspectives on why has the Duvernay not grown as people first expected back then and, and maybe what the outlook is. Well, relative to some of the unconventional resources in North America, the Duvernay is is thin and, and lean. And so it's uh, not as prolific in, in oil and uh, each well can't be expected to have as much in terms of ultimate recovery. So the economics are more challenged inherently. However, with technology, we can look for ways to get more out per well, per, more out per capital dollar of investment and, and, and at higher rates. And so I think the industry has been very effective at doing that, particularly with what's called the East Duvernay, which is in central Alberta in the eastern part of the of the province. If you sort of look at a hinge line that goes between Calgary and Edmonton, north and south and, and east of that line, uh, some new companies have been very successful. West of that line, it's been more challenging because it takes very high pressures to fracture. And so uh, the industry is still working on those technologies. But in the K-Bob region, which is up by Grand Prairie again, and the Duvernay has been very successful there. So one of the neat things about the Duvernay is it has a lot of light oil. And uh, the money formation in Alberta is, is mostly natural gas. There is some light oil there too. But the Duvernay is uh, attractive to, in particular in Canada because it could be a major light oil source for us. Mm-hmm. And that, that is a product that, unlike gas, actually does get a premium price here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah it's interesting how I like to look back in a really long term, say over the last hundred years, how our industry has migrated from different geological regimes across the province as we've surface new technologies to be able to to go in. And we're always migrating to different parts and sometimes going back to the same place over again. And really that's what's happening. And I think, Jackie, I think that the, the Duvernay has not yet proved itself fully, I'll call it successful, just because we haven't fully perfected the learning curve, you know, going down the learning curve with a technology. So, you know, I think that what you're trying to demonstrate is that we're gonna we're gonna start getting clarity on how to do it properly with the new technologies. I think that parts of it are, are there, Peter, and other parts are just uh, emerging as, as commercially viable. So mm-hmm. it's a very attractive play to be in for new product, new value development. Let's talk a little bit about uh, your involvement with the University of Calgary Engineering, which is uh, when I graduated, it was called that. And when you graduated, it was called that. But now it has been renamed some time ago to the Schulich School of Engineering. And just talk a little bit about your involvement with the university. Well, um, several years ago, my wife and I decided that we had been blessed with the good fortune of buying Alberta oil and, and gas leases and making money using the education that I got at the University of Calgary to assemble a lot of wealth for ourselves. And we felt that we had to give it back. And I think in in an economy, uh, the good things that happen socially happen because you've got a strong economy. And strong economies come from an educated population. So we felt that the best way to give to all Canadians would be to give back to the University of Calgary, where we came from. And so we donated to what's now become the Workland School of Education for a program in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder because our children had that uh, disorder. 
And we also donated to the Schuylkill School of Engineering. And more recently, uh, we've donated to the Creative Destruction Labs. Hmm. And I think, uh, like you, I served on a, a non-governing advisory board to the Schuylkill School of Engineering called the Schuylkill Industry Advisory Committee, uh, a really fun way to participate in the challenges that face uh, our, our profession as it emerges. Yeah, and you've left, and I've recently joined, and I'm really enjoying it. And I think it's really great that the school sets this up, because what they're trying to do is understand, well, what does industry need? And are we putting the programs in place that will enable our students to get jobs and to be you know, meeting the needs of the industry? So that's great. Could you talk a little bit, though, about Creative Destruction Labs? I'm not sure all of our listeners will know what that is. Well, it's it's kind of like Dragon's Den for real in some ways. And, and inventors and entrepreneurs have ideas and they are engaged with and are able to meet accomplished business people who can help them make the connections they need to make to bring their products into the marketplace. Yeah, I too am part of the Creation Destruction Lab since its inception a couple of years ago. And I can tell you that it's uh, really caught on and really injected, I think, a, a, a sense of excitement and optimism particularly in the tech community here in the in the Calgary area even though creative destruction lab started in Toronto and now it's across Canada but it's it's really starting to gel the entrepreneurial spirit green shoots in the technology space it overlaps with the energy space the oil and gas space even we've got many startup companies that are addressing that and uh, you know to me it symbolizes the spirit of Alberta in many ways, how it rejuvenates its entrepreneurial spirit. And I mean, as I said, you're the Uber entrepreneur, so you would appreciate it uh, in terms of taking risks to try new things. And really, it's a forum for, for, for doing that, which has also got a lot of mentorship from seasoned people like Pat and others. So as, as supporting the Creative Destruction Labs, you would invest in some of these entrepreneurial companies, Pat? Is that the idea? Well, I support the the program as a whole, just to the in the infrastructure that brings everyone together. But the there's an opportunity at every meeting for entrepreneurs and investors to support the the ideas that are brought forward. And some are at much closer to a commercial stage, and some are just emerging ideas. And there's kind of a, a batch that moves through it every couple of months. They come back with uh, goals they've been given at each meeting, and, and they're supposed to. To achieve the goals, and if they achieve the goals, then there's an expectation that they will get new advisors and potentially different people to help them with the next phase in the evolution of their of their own business. Yeah, it's a broad-based, structured angel investment network, really, yeah. is, is what it is. That is somewhat modeled on a Dragon's Den type model, but uh, without the television flair yeah. associated with it. Well, sounds like a great initiative because I've always yeah. felt, you know, there's a lot of people in this community in, in Western Canada that have mm -hmm. done well. And then there's lots of people with great ideas that don't yeah. have any money. So what a great way to bring oh, people yeah. together. Oh, you know, yeah. You know, I think uh, why it's also very positive is it brings in the wisdom of the entrepreneurs of the past, such as Pat, and meshes them in with the, the younger generation here, which is really dynamic hmm. and also becoming quite entrepreneurial. Yeah, and there's value not yeah, only so, in yeah. financial support, but in that mentorship. Yeah, yeah there so, sure is. Right. Well, uh, you know, I appreciate your contributions to the University of Calgary, especially the engineering school, as I'm an alumni, and I also donate. And I think uh, if we want the University of Calgary to be a leading school, we all should consider donating because that's how we're going to get the programs needed to keep up with the growing technology. So I encourage any of our listeners to think about donating as well, especially if you're from the University of Calgary, because I also agree that it really has been my education there, the cornerstone of uh, any success I've achieved as well. Yeah. 
yeah, I think it's just all part of giving back to the community that has uh, really made us vibrant and successful. Well, Pat, it's been a delight. As I said, it's, uh, you know, we could talk for a lot more here. Not only are you such a successful entrepreneur, but a, a delightful person to be with socially and personally, which I've had the pleasure of, of being able to do with you and your wife. So thanks so much for joining our podcast. And we wish you all the best with your new venture and uh, all the other endless things that I know you're tackling. Okay, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jackie. Yeah, thanks for joining us. And thanks for joining us, listeners. If you like this podcast, please rate us on your app and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com. <laughs>